Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Adrian Goldberg's talk show and today we're at my house in Birmingham where I'm delighted to invite Professor Carl Chin. Carl is one of the best known social historians in the country and a man who knows Birmingham and the West Midlands like the proverbial back of his hand and he's a real expert in the Peaky Blinders, the real Peaky Blinders, which is the title of a book that he's written that's just been published. Carl, welcome along. Lovely to have you here. Nice to be at home as well. It's smashing to see you. Who were the real Peaky Blinders? I first wrote about the Peaky Blinders, Adrian, in my doctoral thesis in 1986. I'd heard about them growing up. Stories that were told by my great uncles and others. And all we really knew... I'm 63 this year, my generation above. All we really know was this story that they stitched disposable safety razor blades into the peaks of their caps and in a fight they would slash them across the foreheads of the enemy, hence causing blood to go in their eyes to blind them. In the series it says across the eyes, but the story that a lot of us grew up with in Birmingham was across the forehead. The real Peaky Blinders, there's such a lot of wonderfully mythologised stories about the Peaky Blinders. The, the reality is very different. First of all, there were no Peaky Blinder gangs in Birmingham after the First World War. Secondly, there was not one Peaky Blinder gang. Before the First World War, there were only four major English cities with a backstreet gang problem. There were horrible, nasty men everywhere. There were little gangs everywhere. But there was only Liverpool with its cornermen. Manchester and Salford with the Scotlers, London had street gangs and Birmingham. And those street gangs from 1872 in Birmingham were called sloggers. A pugilistic term for somebody who strikes with a fierce blow. The sloggers were backstreet thugs based in particular streets and they fought each other. But they also preyed upon the hard-working decent, respectable majority of the poor. They blighted their lives and they hated the police. They were constable baiters. From 1890, a new term emerges, Peaky Blinder. And it's that term that's gone into folklore and has been, which has been mythologised. The Peaky Blinder term came in after a brutal attack on an innocent man called George Eastwood. March the 23rd, 1890, Adrian, he's gone into the Rainbow Pub on the corner of Adley Street and High Street, Borsley. Digbeth in Birmingham, yeah, which yeah, is still, yeah, there, yeah, still yeah, there. Still there, the pub is still there, although it's closed, sadly. He's a teetotaler, but he must like the atmosphere of the pub, and he orders a ginger beer. And a bit later, according to the Birmingham Mail on the Monday, three hard men come in. He knows they're hard men. They're local blokes. And they start insulting poor George for drinking a ginger beer. And one of them, Thomas Mucklow, offers him out to have a fight. Are you going to go outside and fight a bloke that's got two hard men with him? Anyway, he, the kerfuffle dies down. A bit later, about quarter to eleven, Thomas Mucklow, a man whom I know now called Groom, his brother-in-law, and an unknown man leave. Fifteen minutes later, George Eastwood leaves. He has to turn left. Now, you know when you come out of the rainbow, you go under two railway viaducts, South Staffordshire Blue Brick. And he's got to turn right then along Upper Trinity Street to get home to Arthur Street in Small Heath. He never makes it. They come out of the darkness and chase him. They brutally assault him under one of the two viaducts. Mucklow is shouting, give it to him, hot lads. He gets punched, he falls to the floor, they kick him about the street. And then Groom, according to Eastwood, 
takes his belt. This was the main weapon of the Scotlers of Manchester and Salford and the Sloggers of Birmingham. They would wrap it around their wrist or between the thumb and forefinger and then they would leave about eight inches and they would buckle it, heavy brass buckles, and they belted him and belted him. Eventually he was in hospital for three weeks and he suffered so many contusions through the kicking and the belting he had to have an operation called trepanin. Part of his skull cut out to relieve the pressure on the brain. Somehow it has to be fear and adrenaline. He manages to jump up and eventually runs into a house where he's protected until the police come. On the Monday, the Birmingham Mail reported this terrible attack had been carried out by the gang of Peaky Blinders. Thenceforth, the term Peaky Blinder comes into use for men who are members of slugging gangs. The terms are interchangeable and it arises because of the fashion. Not because of disposable safety razor blades, but because they pull the peak of the cap over one eye to show off a quiff of hair that they've got on the other side. They're like skinheads, apart from a quiff of hair they like to show off. The term Peaky Blinder is the one that's grabbed attention. The gangs eventually are put down, but 1890 is the first time the term Peaky Blinder is used. That is in the press, suggests to me it's been used on the street beforehand. So... There was not one single Peaky Blinders gang like we see in the television series. Obviously, Thomas Shelby is the leader of that gang. It was more of a generic term for quite tough street hooligans. It was indeed a generic term that was used for street thugs in gangs and they would fight each other. The Park Street gang, for example, Selfridges now overlooks Park Street, had a vicious gang war with Milk Street just down the road. In Digbeth. There were other gang wars fought between these backstreet gangs. The term that's mostly used is slugger and slugging gangs, and that continues to be the dominant term. But Peaky Blinder is also used. From the later 1890s, it's interesting. Originally, Peaky Blinder is used for men in slugging gangs, but then it seems to extend a little to include those who may not have been in a gang, but are still violent, ruthless men. So the term Peaky Blinder becomes more like hooligan, which is a term that emerges in 1898 after a rowdy, violent bank holiday August in London. Was there any historical parallel then to the character of Thomas Shelby and his family? There was a historical parallel with a family called the Sheldons, whom Stephen Knight has said were his maternal, his father's maternal uncles. The Sheldons were involved in the worst gang war in Birmingham's history, probably until the Johnson boys and the Burger boys. And it was fought between 1908 and 1912 in all the back streets behind Digbeth and Derry 10, very localised gang war between men who had been sluggers and Peaky Blinders. The Sheldons were a violent family, three brothers, Samuel, Joseph and John, racecourse rogues, ruffians, armed robbers. They were a horrible, nasty family. They fought a man called Billy Beach and his men who came together around him. They were all working chaps, but hard men. Went on for four years, in and around Digbeth, Derry Tend, Bordsley. It was known as the Garrison Lane Vendetta. So there is a, a, a similarity there, a synergy to an extent, between the Sheldons, which Stephen Knight, the, the story writer, and he's written a, a compelling story, which has been brilliant for Birmingham, but which he has said was the, the, a family story he heard was the spark for the Shelbys. Only the spark. And definitely only the spark because the timeline is very different. The Shelbys in the television series operate post-war yeah. and the real-life Sheldons were, were pre-World yeah. War One. Uh, 
talking about the story that Stephen Knight grew up with and his family connections, you, Carl, have also got a connection, haven't you? Yeah, there's a two connections in my family. If you remember in series one, the Shelbys are making their money by illegal betting. It was against the law to bet for cash away from the race course until 1961. It seems ludicrous today, doesn't it, Adrian, where you can lose your life in half an hour on the internet and mobile phone. So, in order to cater for the demand of many working class people, not all, for a small cash bets, illegal bookmakers emerged. And they proliferated from the 1920s after the First World War. One of them was my granddad, Richard Alfred Chin, who started taking bets in Studley Street, Sparkbrook, off the Ladypool Road in 1922. They didn't have illegal betting shops as we see in the series. We took on the streets. The reason being, to have an illegal betting shop was a £75 to £100 fine, whereas street betting was a £10 fine. We didn't have ticker tape machines giving race-by-race race results. We took bets only in the dinner hour of the factories. Some dinner hours were 12 to 1, others was half 12 to half 1. So we took between 12 and 2.30. Not only in Birmingham, this was Manchester, Salford, the East End of London, South London, the big cities, the industrial cities. And we didn't take race-by-race race bets because we had no means to do so. So you took doubles and trebles and paid out on the evening when we got the results from the Birmingham Mail, or the Express and Star, or the Sheffield Star, whatever newspaper it may have been. Grandad, like all of the backstreet bookmakers of Birmingham, was not involved in gang warfare at all. There was petty amounts of money paid to the police to let us know when they were going to pinch us, because it was £10 offence for the first time, £20 for a second, so you'd have your regular taker who you'd take off when the coppers told you they were coming. But it wasn't big style. But it wasn't big style bribery and corruption. And you say us then? Were you part of it as well? In your, in no. your youth? <laughs> I say us because Dad was the legal bookie as well to sixty one. No, I was born in fifty six. I just missed it. But I was a bookmaker myself before I became a, a teacher, a lecturer, and a writer. Uh, I worked in the family betting shops on the Ladypool Road, Stony Lane, from when I was thirteen part time, and ran them from seventy eight to eighty four. So that's one connection. That was on my dad's paternal side. Dad, my granddad, Chin. On my dad's mother's side, there's a man called Edward Derrick. Didn't know much about him growing up, other than he was violent and abusive to my great-grandmother, Ada, that he was a petty thief and a man who was regarded by the rest of the family as reprehensible. I later found out, thanks to the West Midlands Police Museum, with their photograph, it's, oh, Adrian, you've got to see their photographic collection. It's amazing. It's priceless that my great-grandfather would have been a Peaky Blinder. His brother John was involved, a leading member of Slogging Gang, and my great-grandfather, Edward Derrick, photo of him when he was 16. He's got the new fashion of the Peakies with his hair cut, parted in the middle, his hair parted in the middle, the cap of the Peakies, the white muffler. No evidence he was actually in a gang, but he's one of these men that's called a Peaky Blinder because they're violent and ruffianly, violent and, ruffianly and they are backstreet thugs. He was a petty criminal who got done for nicking on one occasion, Adrian, the side of bacon from outside of Port Butchers. He also got done for assault and for violently attacking a policeman. But he used to also violently, brutally assault my great-grandmother Ada and smash up their house. Like all of the people, these are men were not glamorous. They were not honourable. They were unglamorous and they were dishonourable. So the Shelby family didn't really have a, a direct historical link, but some of the characters in Peaky Blinders, you found, did have a direct link, weren't they? People like Billy Kimber, who was kind of a rival for the 
access to the race courses that the Shelbys want in the series. It's very interesting to look at the first series and it's based around the Shelbys, the Peaky Blinder gang, strive for control of the race courses that were run at that time by Billy Kimber, a London gangster. That reflected a real race course gang war that erupted in March 1921 over control of the extortion rackets on racecourse bookmakers and pickpocketing on the south of England. This had arisen from the fact there were different gangs controlling the racecourses, the rackets. From the 1880s, the most vicious collection of ruffians on the Midlands racecourses, the north of England and the west country, were the Brummagem boys, later known as the Birmingham gang. Now, these were mafia-style gangs. Adrian, they were not like the Andregata from Calabria, the Mafia of Sicily, the Camorra of Naples, the Yakuza of Japan. They didn't have an organised structure. There were small gangs of pickpockets and racecourse rogues, six, seven, eight in a little gang, but they could come together in a frightening, fearful, violent mob. In the early 20th century, they came together in a slightly better organised manner, led by the real Billy Kimber. The real Billy Kimber was not a Londoner. He was not small. He was a big burly brummy, five foot eight and a half, according to the police records, from Hospital Street in Summer Lane. And he had a pickpocketing gang travelling the country. It included his brother Harry, his other brother Joe, a horrible, nasty, violent man called McDonough, also known as McDonald, also known as White. And they were violent men. And through travelling the country, Billy Kimber palled up with two major London mobs. The Elephant Boys, at the heart of which were the McDonald's, South London. And the Camden Town Mob, North London, led by George Brummy Sage. He wasn't a Brummy, but he knocked about with the Brummies. After the First World War, there was anarchy on the racecourses of the South. Loads of different gangs coming in, extorting money on the same day from bookmakers, pickpocketing. In the Midlands, the North and the West Country, led by Billy Kimber, the Birmingham gang reasserted its control with a rod of iron. Kimber is drawn down to take over the very lucrative, more lucrative racecourse rackets down south, and he runs off the other gangsters in alliance with the Elephant Boys and the Camden Town Mob. That arouses envious eyes, and eventually, after a terrible beating of the real Alfie Solomon in 1921, an alliance of London-based gangs comes together to fight the Birmingham gang and its London allies. A really violent war erupts throughout the spring and summer of 1921. And is this where you've got the real-life Alfie Solomon, who you've mentioned, and you've also got Darby Sabini, who was a, a South London gangster? Yeah. No, Darby Sabini, the real Darby Sabini, was not an Italian mafia-style Don, speaking with an Italian accent. He was born in 1888 in Clerkenwell in North London, in Saffron Hill, known as the Hill, which was the Italian quarter of London. His dad indeed was Italian, but not from Sicily. But the Sabinis came from the villages around Palmer in northern Italy. And his mum was an Englishwoman. Hanley was her name. He often used the alias Frederick Handley later in life. He saw himself as an Englishman. He was the main leader, not Alfie Solomon. I have no evidence that Alfie Solomon was a gangster till he was brutally beaten on the 12th of March 1921 by Thomas Armstrong, a top fighter in the Birmingham gang, at Sandown Park Racecourse. And he was beaten because Armstrong wanted a £30 bet on a horse. He didn't give the bookie the money, of course, because if he lost, he wasn't going to give the bookie the money. But if he won, did he want paying? Yes. Armstrong comes back. Solomon refuses to pay. Armstrong brutally assaults him. And then this vicious war erupts, including a gang of Jewish tearaways led by Alfie Solomon. 
and other gangs, the most important gang is the Sabini gang, led by the real Derby Sabini, who used to wear a flat cap and mostly a collarless shirt. And it goes on through the spring and summer of 1921 until a truce was declared. The Birmingham gang kept the Midlands, the North, the West Country. The Sabinis, Solomon take over most of the South and East Anglia. A new war erupts in London between the Elephant Boys, who are not happy, Camden Town Mob, who are not happy, and Billy Kimber. And there's more to be told there. It's really interesting, isn't it, how the television series, now into its uh, fifth season, yeah. takes these, in, in some cases, real-life historical mm. incidents and rivalries, but mythologises yeah. them, uh, fantasises about them almost, and turns them into something that yeah. isn't quite history, but is undeniably very good television. It, it's compelling television, and it's powerful, it's pugnacious, it's pulsating, it draws people in. So, for me as a historian watching it, you know, one half of my brain is saying, that never happened, that's not like that. The other half of the brain is saying, wow, this is compelling, it draws you in. Alfie Solomon in the series is portrayed superbly by Tom Hardy. His name was not Solomon's, it was Solomon. He wasn't a religious Jew. He wasn't an Orthodox Jew, as we see his minder with the curls of the Orthodox Jews, named Ishmael, I think, his minder. The real Alfie Solomon was a secular Jew. He was born in Covent Garden, North London. He wasn't a Yiddish-speaking Jew from East London. His mum and dad lived in Covent Garden. They were both born in England. His dad was a greengrocer. They had a servant. They wouldn't have been wealthy, but they would have been better off. Similarly with Darby Sabini. So it is, you're right, Adrian, I think what the author Stephen Knight done is superbly brought together a variety of historical realities with regard to people, places and events, merged them, put them together to this powerful pop called drama and it's come out with an excellent drama. And you've written this book then, The Real Peaky Blinders, not in opposition to the television series, but just because there is a real fascination out there for who were these people, what really did go on and in some ways it's every bit as compelling yeah. as the drama I would say the work that I've done uh, which has been going on really since the late 1970s has complemented the series I think it's very important whilst praising the series whilst recognising its power its vitality whilst emphasising how beneficial it's been to Birmingham and the West Midlands that we need to understand that there is also a reality that is not glamorous it's not about honourable men it's a reality that is more brutal and vicious and that really what we need to understand is that the real heroes of the back streets, and this is what I finished the book off with, are not the Peaky Blinders, are not the gang members, not the thugs. It's the mums and the big sisters and the aunties and their grandmothers. The women that worked every day knowing that today will be the same as yesterday and tomorrow will be the same as today. An unrelenting battle against an implacable enemy called poverty. And what inspires me with all is that for the most part, those women fought poverty with dignity, pride and decency. Carl Chin, thank you.